0: Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Robots, artificial intelligence, and driverless cars are becoming increasingly common, along with virtual reality and digital personal assistance. How will these tools transform society, the economy, and politics? On the show today, Daryl West, Vice President and Director of Governance Studies at Brookings, addresses these and many related issues that are the subject of his new book, the Brookings Press titled, The Future of Work, Robots, AI, and Automation. Also on today's show, meet Celia Ballan, a visiting fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe here at Brookings, who describes her family's journey from their village to the city of Dijon, and her own path to becoming a scholar. Finally today, Susan Hennessy, executive editor of Lawfare, and a fellow in national security at Brookings, introduces SourceList a database of experts in technology policy from diverse backgrounds. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. And now, here's my colleague, Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Press, with Daryl West.
1: Hi, Daryl. Good to see you. Nice to see you. So, the robots are coming for our jobs? They are coming for your jobs. It's just a question of when. <laughs> I mean, the thing about robots is they're getting a lot more sophisticated, but they're also coming down in cost. There are business leaders who are saying they can actually get a very sophisticated robot for twenty to $25,000. And so when you think about the comparison between investing in that robot versus a human being that wants vacation time, gets sick, sometimes wants to unionize, it's like businesses are going to be shifting to robots just because the financial incentives are so clear. Can you give us some
2: examples of where this is happening now or about to happen? You mentioned McDonald's installing
1: digital ordering kiosks, which I guess really isn't a robot per se, but... No, but it's automation. And, you know, between robots, AI, and automation, there's a revolution that's uh, taking place. I mean, I've gone into restaurants now where they see you at the table and they give you a tablet and you order from the tablet as opposed to a waiter or a waitress. As you mentioned, McDonald's is introducing kiosks in all of its fast food restaurants. As soon as they announced that they were going to do that last year, the stock price immediately jumped up and everybody raised their earnings estimates. So the business community clearly sees the financial value of this. We're starting to see automation affect the retail sector, which is a big employer for entry-level people. Mm -hmm. Amazon is introducing stores that are fully automated, meaning that they will track the items that you put in the shopping cart, automatically charge whatever you have put in that cart to your credit card or to a mobile device, and you can walk out of that store without speaking to any sales clerk. It's almost like an Uber insult from Amazon that it opens up a a
2: brick-and-mortar store but doesn't hire any actual people to do anything inside it. When we use the word robots, what
1: exactly are we talking about then? I mean, for me, a robot is just an automated device. And so we have, like, the simple robots, like – in an automotive factory that, you know, the car goes by, it sprays the paint on it, and that's kind of an automated process, but the robots now are getting much more sophisticated, and they're developing the capacity to learn as they go along. So as they get exposed to new situations, new data, and need to adjust what they're doing, they will do that automatically without the human telling them, you need to make this change. So that's kind of a sign of the ability of automation to reach much wider variety of areas. I mean, people are used to worrying about the impact on blue-collar jobs and mm-hmm. entry-level workers, and and certainly there are going to be a lot of jobs lost there. But it's no longer just those entry-level jobs. It's like white-collar jobs are going to see a lot of automation. Like we've discovered radiologists, you know, who read the x-rays and the cat scans, it turns out you can actually teach artificial intelligence software how to spot abnormalities. You essentially feed them a bunch of x-rays and then show them like these are the 5% that have abnormal readings. The software will learn that and then they can independently read the cat scans on their own. So that's an example of a healthcare profession which requires a lot of expertise, but the AI is actually becoming as good as a human. So it's not just blue collar, it's white collar too. So what are some of the jobs, other jobs that might be affected, eliminated by automation? I mean, one of the big ones that's coming up in the very near future is driverless cars and driverless trucks. And keep in mind that truck delivery is one of the classic entry-level occupations for people coming out of high school who do not want to go to college. And it's a lucrative profession, you know, people driving across the country and delivering things. All of the big truck driving firms are investing heavily in autonomous vehicles because they really see a lot of potential there for cost savings. And so, as soon as next year, you're going to see driverless cars and trucks on the road. They're probably going to first develop in specialty areas, so truck delivery systems will be a big part. The ride-sharing services, the Lyfts and the Ubers of the world are racing forward in this area. Car driving services for the elderly and the disabled also are going to be a big market. So that's where it's going to take off, and then it'll slowly diffuse to the consumer market out of that.
2: So the pedestrian fatality in Arizona with the, uh, was it Uber? It was Uber, Uh, Uber, yes. With its autonomous car, that shouldn't be taken as an example of that this learning curve for automated cars is going to be steeper than we thought it was. The forensics on that have been done, and we already know what the
1: problem was, and it can be fixed going forward. I mean, Uber is investigating exactly what we're wrong in that situation, and they are making the adjustments. I don't think that's going to significantly slow the rollout. I mean, Uber, for example, already has ordered 24,000 driverless cars for delivery starting in 2019. They are moving ahead with that. Okay. All the automotive companies are investing billions in this uh, technology because what they see is people are actually becoming less likely to buy cars. And especially young people are not buying cars anymore. So they understand their market is changing. The ride-sharing services are taking off. And so they need to develop this new market of driverless cars. Otherwise, they're going to have big financial problems.
2: And just to put a positive interlude in here for those of us who are worried about this,
1: what job categories are probably safe from automation? Any job involving data is a guaranteed ticket to a good job and making a lot of money. Digital technology is generating billions of bits of data, and we need a capacity to analyze the data, make sense of it, and to figure out how to integrate real-time data in actual decisions so we can actually improve the choices that we make. So anything related to data, computer design, software, There's a humanities element in the sense that we need to figure out how to design technology products so they're usable. I mean, Stephen Jobs didn't always have the best technology, but he always had the best design Mm. products. And that's one of the reasons, you know, Apple did so well as a company. And so the technology companies are looking for humanities people who have those design skills to make their products usable.
2: So it's not just robots, of course, as you point out in the book, that are going to lead to this revolution in work. You also discuss AI, the Internet of Things. What can we expect to see in AI? And before you tell us that, can you explain just what you mean by AI,
1: artificial intelligence? Artificial intelligence are just automated software systems that can analyze data and then make decisions based on that. So an example in the finance area is about half of the stock trades in America today are done by machines. They're automated. It's not human stock brokers and traders who are making the trades. It's automated systems mm-hmm. that are doing that. People are using AI in terms of fraud detection. Like you can look at a bunch of financial transactions and figure out what are the outliers? What are the things that look abnormal compared to the whole group? So we're seeing AI applications in finance, in healthcare through the radiology example Mm -hmm. uh, that I gave. The criminal justice system is trying to incorporate AI in sentencing decisions. There are a lot of school systems that when people have to apply for a particular charter school, there are AI systems that kind of aggregate the multitude of factors that go into that, and then that helps with the assignment patterns to a particular schools. So it's really becoming widespread across every sector.
2: I have to say AI has me a little worried because we were just talking about jobs. You mentioned in a book a survey of researchers from Yale and Oxford who say that there's a 50% chance of AI, that is artificial intelligence, outperforming humans in all tasks in 45 years and of automating all human jobs in 120 years. Granted, that's a century from now, but
1: all human jobs. Well, the pace of technology innovation is taking off. I mean, you know, we've been living the Internet era for almost thirty years now and so people kind of falsely assume that a lot of the technology that's going to be created has already been created. And that's actually not the case. Like we're in the first inning of technology innovation, but over the next five to ten years I think people are going to be genuinely shocked how fast the automation comes in, the new technologies that are going to be developed. I mean just think about what has happened with smartphones and you know how recently we have come to use them, and now everybody relies on them for a wide variety of things. Digital assistants are going to become much more prevalent. The Alexas, the Google Homes of the world, people are going to rely on them to pay bills, order pizzas, and kind of arrange their personal lives. So it's like all these things are coming together and you know, it could produce a future that is amazing. We actually may reach some type of utopia. Or it could go entirely the other area and become a complete dystopia.
2: And we'll come to what that future might be in, in a moment or so. You also write about the Internet of Things. That's the third component here in the automation of work. That's everything from the $300 toothbrush with Bluetooth and an app for it to the thermostat in the house,
1: right? Yes. There are going to be sensors that help people in a lot of different areas. For example, in most urban areas, the big problem is parking. And there have been some studies that have estimated that up to 30% of the traffic congestion in major cities is people circling the block to try and find that open parking place. Well, there's an app for that. You know, there are going to be sensors for parking places and spots that are open in garages that'll tell you Like, when you want to go to a particular location, like, this is the spot in the garage where you can park. So, it's going to save people a lot of time and it's going to help in terms of energy management as well. There are going to be sensors for all sorts of things. There are going to be remote monitoring devices in healthcare that can record your vital signs and other aspects of your health. Those devices will electronically submit that to your physician, and the physician then can become proactive, like as opposed to waiting for you to come to the office and say, I have this pain and what do I do about it? The physician can use those data to monitor your health and kind of spot an abnormality like in your heart rate or, you know, having breathing difficulties. If you're a senior citizen, is your walking become a little unstable so that you're at risk of falling? So there are going to be lots of ways in which those types of sensors are going to be linked together in a way that's really going to help people.
0: The interview with Daryl will continue after this coffee break with visiting fellow Celia Belan. Stay tuned to the end to find out her book recommendation.
3: I'm Celia Belan. I'm a visiting fellow at the Center on the U.S. and Europe at the Brookings Institution. So I grew up in France, in Dijon, which is the capital of the Dukes of Burgundy. And the story of my family is probably a textbook example of the sociological evolution of France. My grandparents were farmers. They live in a very remote region of France, which is Haute Zone, And they grew crops. They had several cows and they had uh, big Catholic families. My grandmother had 17 brothers and sisters. This all changed after World War II when my parents' generation got an education from the French public school system of the Republic of France, and they were all able to actually leave the small village and all move to the big cities, Dijon being one of those big cities. And that's where I grew up in the banlieue, you know, the suburban neighborhoods of small towns where you have a mix of lower middle class families from the countryside and immigrants' families. Then, you know, my parents' generation were all civil servants, postal workers, teachers, hospital staff, and then my generation were college educated and were able to move to even bigger cities, Paris, Brussels, and be more globalized. So that's where I come in from this very countrysidey background up to Washington, D.C. today. So I studied foreign policy and international relations mainly because I love foreign languages and I love to travel. That started when I was 12, when I did travel for the first time abroad, because my mom picked for me an American godmother who happened to live in Scotland at the time, and I went to visit her. And that same year, I went with my class to Poland, which was only a few years after the fall of the communist regime. And it was such an interesting and different country in my young teenager's eyes that I got fascinated in the idea of traveling and studying other cultures abroad. And later, thanks to you know the European Union, I got to travel to Spain for an Erasmus of one year and continuing with discovering foreign cultures. I ended up in two thousand three at the French consulate in Chicago right at the time of the French-American dispute over the Iraq War. At the time, as an intern, I was in charge of opening the hate mail that was received by the consulate. And it was such a tense moment in French-American relations that I got fascinated by diplomacy, foreign policy, and international relations. I came back and decided to start a PhD on those issues and study French-American relations first. So I believe that today we're at a turning point. We're at the moment when the world needs to decide between power confrontation and the more collaborative route that we had taken over the past 30 years. For those who reject that collaborative path, it is based on the conviction that today power is the only way to regulate challenges for the better rather than laws, international law or norms. Yet, I do believe that most of the pressing international issues like climate change, like reversing poverty, like building a just globalization, for example, can only be dealt with in a collaborative manner, within a multilateral framework, but also with the help of civil societies and the power of individuals, even preventing proliferation of WMD. All of these challenges needs a reaffirmation of the need for collaboration. And so we are at the moment where the big powers are starting to make us believe that there is a return of, you know, a world of the carnivores where only the biggest and the strongest can prevail. But we need to promote the sense of a belonging to a global village where only collaboration can help us solve all of these pressing issues. Because President Trump has been such a disruptive figure in international relation, the state of transatlantic relation is at risk. And so I'm currently studying the challenges to the bilateral French-American relation, but also in general, the states and challenges of the transatlantic relation. I'm trying to see if there's avenues for cooperation going forward, or if we are heading for an inevitable clash. I am also working on a pet project of mine, which is I'm studying the demise of the European left comparatively, looking at what happened to social democracy within European democracies in the past 30 years. What is so surprising is that leftist parties that were so powerful in the mid-90s are today in shambles or at least have left powers. And you have the rise not only of extremists on the right, but also extremists on the left, and also a new brand of cross-party, center, left-right, but with a disappearance of the mainstream leftist parties. So at the moment, I'm looking at what could Explain this demise of social democracy and also what is a new project for the European left and what type of vision of society can they offer to their citizens. If I could recommend any book at the moment, I would probably recommend the one that I'm reading right now, which I absolutely love. The book is called East West Streets by Philippe Sands. And it is both a family memoir but also a research project. It's a research project on the Nuremberg trials and on the two legal experts who invented the concepts of crime against humanity and genocide. But it turns out that these two legal experts have studied in the same university in a town called Lemberg, Lvov, which is a town that has been at times Austrian, Ukrainian, Polish, but also dominated by Russian, then Germans, then back to being Ukrainian, And it so happens that these two legal scholars also lived there at the same time as the author's grandfather, of which the author knew very little. And all three of them were Jewish. All three of them had their entire family wiped out by the Nazis. And all three of them grew in this very interesting region in Europe, which has been challenged over by so many dominating powers which has seen some of the most horrifying history of the world over there. And so the research is colossal, but the way it's written, it's also almost a detective story because he pulls out family secrets and also explains how the two concepts of crime against humanity and genocide were thought through and what are their implications in international relations. And I think at a moment when we continue thinking about mass atrocities and how to bring leaders to justice, it's a fascinating book and it's a very, very endurable read.
0: And now back to Bill Feynman and Daryl West.
2: I want to come back to AI for a moment again. And you write that AI now is only as good as the data that's fed into it. But there are concerns about that data, that while machines may be unbiased, humans aren't. And it is us humans who collect that data first. And there can be problems with the collection of that data. Can you talk about what this
1: means? The weak link of AI is it's all about the data. And so if you have really good data that are fair and unbiased, you can get fair and unbiased decisions that come out of that software. But the problem is a lot of our data are messy. We have data that are biased or prejudicial in Mm -hmm. some respects. In the finance area, you know, banks often have been accused of redlining people in terms of denying access to credit in poor communities or among the minority neighborhoods. And so to the extent that the data reflect historic injustices, the AI is at risk of perpetuating those types of injustices. So the one thing we have to be careful about with AI is to make sure that the data are fair-minded. So as an example of this, facial recognition software has gotten really good like it can look at an image and basically figure out that it's you but what some of the experiments have already shown is a lot of the pictures that get fed into facial recognition software to train them are basically pictures of caucasians and as a result of that The facial recognition is 95% accurate in recognizing the faces of white people, but only 70% accurate in recognizing the faces of minority people, because there weren't enough minority pictures to train that software. So that's an example where we just have to be careful that our AI systems don't replicate historic injustices and recreate all the biases that have existed in the past.
2: So that's one of the dark sides. And as I was reading the book, I was hoping I would find some upsides automation and that work will be redefined, you note. But it's not going to be a new age of leisure time and an end to the nine to five workday, it seems. Economic dislocation, I'm the term that the economists probably will use to describe this, seems too antiseptic a term to capture what
1: you spell out in this book. It's fundamental economic disruption that's going to uh, take place. I mean, there's certainly going to be new types of jobs that get created, but it's going to be a messy transition period in which many Americans are not going to have the skills necessary for those new jobs. So it's going to require a lot of retraining. There's a risk that many people will get left behind. I mean, if you look at the national unemployment rate, like right now, we have a 3.9% unemployment. But if you look at young black men, it's 30%. So we already have lots of inequities. Technology may actually make those inequities much worse among young people, among women, among people of color. And so we just have to be careful during this transition period that... We help the workers who are being left behind. We don't want to end up in a situation like Syria or Iraq where you basically have a 30 percent or more unemployment rate among young men. And they basically have nothing to do. They have no hope. They're not going to get a job. Like those situations are always unstable. There's a lot of chaos. There's a tendency towards violence. So that's been a problem of the developing world. What we don't want to happen in the developed world is essentially we move towards that kind of model because that would just be very unstable and unhappy for way too many people. And this takes us to what I think is at the heart of
2: your new book, which is the concern with the state government and how it deals with and reacts to what you're calling a mega change in the way people lead their lives. You, in fact, issue a warning unless there's a more effective governance The process of conflict resolution will prove quite contentious over the next few decades and could undermine democratic systems of government. What are the factors that lead you
1: to that dark prospect? Well, the analogy I like to make is if you go back 100 years, the United States faced a fundamental transition from an agrarian economy to an industrial economy. It was a messy time period. It took 30 years or more to kind of work through those things. But we actually came up with some effective policy solutions. So we adopted Social Security. We developed unemployment compensation. There were worker safety programs that were put in. We invested in health care. We built our infrastructure. But it also took a number of political reforms to make those types of changes possible. You know, we expanded the electorate by giving women the right to vote, we moved to direct election of senators, we introduced the presidential primary to kind of break the power of the party body. We added a constitutional amendment for the income tax, so there was a new financing mechanism. It took a large number of economic and political changes to really navigate that transition. Today, we're in a similar situation of facing a transition to the digital economy that, again, is going to be messy and chaotic and difficult. But it's perfectly within our realm to actually solve this problem by coming up with policies that help people, make sure they're not left behind, retrain them so they can get the new jobs. But the thing that I worry the most about is just our governance system is so polarized and highly partisan right now, that it's not even possible to really have the conversations about the new policy responses that we need to undertake. And so this is really the greatest risk, that our politics simply will be not up to the task, that our governance will not allow us to make the very logical policy changes that we need to make, and that that will end up 30 years from now, producing dystopia as opposed to utopia. You call for a new social contract, and that's what you're pointing to here.
2: And the the old one that came into being with the change from agrarian to industrial society isn't enough for
1: what we're seeing now. What are some elements of this new social contract then that we need? Well, the thing that is most crucial is we have the technology changes that are taking place, but there's also a shift in the business model, you know, the development of the gig economy, or it's also called the sharing economy, but it basically means part-time jobs without benefits, and there have been a lot of them in the European Union, for example, since the Great Recession, half of all the new jobs that have been created are part-time jobs. Now, in Europe, they have universal health care, so even if you don't have a job or if you have a part-time job, you still get health care. In America, most of our benefits, healthcare retirement, disability benefits, are tied to the job. So if you either don't have a job or if you have a part-time job, you don't have those benefits. And so the new social contract needs some way to deliver income, health care, and retirement benefits to people who are either unemployed or underemployed or are in part-time jobs where people are not going to qualify for that. So that's the policy puzzle that we need to figure out.
2: You mentioned near the end of the book that automation already has real world political consequences. You cite a recent study in the book that did a county level analysis of the 2016 presidential election that found that most of the zones were more than one robot had been introduced for every thousand workers, ended up backing Trump over Clinton. There's clearly an association between places that introduced robots, factories that lost manufacturing jobs, and votes for Republican presidential candidate. So the discontent is already being felt, as you pointed out earlier, with this political polarization. But you end your book with some ideas on what can happen now. Can you highlight a few of them?
1: you know whenever people are nervous economically either for themselves or for their friends and family members and children there are political consequences and so i think it's no accident that we got donald trump in this particular era i mean he pointed to the disruptions based on lost manufacturing jobs and bad trade deals but The economic changes are actually much broader than that. He actually underestimates the disruption that's taking place because it's really going to cut across every sector. It's not just a a manufacturing or a trade issue. So what we need to guard against is that we don't end up in a situation where the economic anxiety produces what I like to call Trumpism on steroids, meaning Trump is actually not an aberration, but the anxiety produces a lot of discontent, mistrust of major political institutions, and you have a series of populist politicians who come around to take advantage of that. And a big part of the political problem right now is the geographic inequities, because we basically have a situation where there's a lot of economic prosperity on the East Coast and on the West Coast, but not too much in between. Our political system is based on geographic representation. We may end up in a situation where the prosperous areas have 30 senators, And the not-very-prosperous areas have 70 senators, and that is like a complete disaster for America. Like, that guarantees that every election going forward is going to have some version of a populist leader. It could be a right-wing populist like Trump, or it could be a left-wing populist that would be equally upsetting to people in the Midwest who you know, are not inclined to support that type of philosophy. So when you think about the reforms that would make a difference here, I argue we need to move towards universal voting. It's what the Australians do. They basically say you have to vote and it's a twenty five dollar fine if you don't vote. So you know it's just a very small penalty. But based on that, they have ninety to ninety five percent turnout. Mm-hmm. If we want to get a handle on political polarization, We need to increase the turnout because when you have low turnout elections, it encourages both Democrats and Republicans to play to their base. And that's how we get extremism, intolerance, and polarization. I think we also need to get rid of the Electoral College because of those geographic inequities that I talked about. We've already had two recent elections where there is a difference in the outcome between the popular vote and the Electoral College. With the inequities based on prosperity between the coast and the Midwest, that may actually become the norm where every election produces a different winner in the Electoral College versus the popular vote. That will be a constitutional crisis if that happens all the time as opposed to sporadically, which has been the case in the past. So I think we need to really rethink some of these basic governance questions kind of recognizing that the accelerating technology is going to produce economic disruption, there's going to be anxiety. But if we don't have a system that can still make positive and constructive changes going forward, then our governance is going to produce very bad outcomes. Daryl, thank you. I want listeners to know there's far more in Daryl's new book than
2: what we touched on today. And you can find it in bookstores, or you can ask Alexa to order it for you.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much.
0: Once again, the book is The Future of Work, Robots, AI, and Automation by Daryl West. Finally today, I talk with Susan Hennessy, Executive Editor of Lawfare and a Fellow in National Security at Brookings, about Sourcelist, a database of experts in technology policy from diverse backgrounds. Susan, welcome to the studio again. Thanks for having me. So what is Sourcelist?
4: So source list is a list. It's a well-organized list and a highly searchable list of women who are experts in technology policy. So technology policy, we it's sort of a nebulous term or a very broad term, right? It encompasses anything from women with computer science backgrounds to people who are in the legal part of the policy conversation. But really, there is a very broad public debate going on. And this is a list of women who should be participants in that debate.
0: And I want to follow up on that but first I want to ask you about its origin. How did this start? Did you get the idea?
4: Yeah. So almost two years ago at this point, Amy Stepanovich, who works at Access Now, tweeted after seeing sort of a panel on lawful hacking that was all men. She was sort of fed up by that. And so she tweeted, hey, you know, if you're organizing a panel on on lawful hacking, here's the women that you should be talking to, myself and a few others, because there were a lot of women working on this particular sort of technology policy issue. I, inspired by that tweet, made a quick sort of lawfare post that just said, here's a tweet from Amy. Here's 10 names that I have." That you should consider talking to. And at the bottom of that post, without really thinking about it, I'm just putting a, hey, if anyone else has a name of a woman that people should be aware of, let me know and I'll add it. Within 24 hours, I had 300 names in my email. And we kept trying to update the list, you know, as new names were coming in. And there were just so many that we had to say, okay, there's obviously something here and we need to build something that actually is going to be useful, just because there obviously is an enormous appetite and need. So at that point, you know, we took a step back and thought about, you know, hey, how can we build something that actually is going to be useful and be a real practical tool that people can use.
0: And who are the people that you hope will use this list and for what purposes?
4: Yeah, so like all things, you never quite know who it's going to be most useful to. But I think we have broadly three groups in mind. The first is journalists. So, you know, representation begets representation. And I think a lot of scholars have the experience that once they are quoted in, you know, a news article, especially in an important publication, other reporters will reach out to them because they now see, OK, I'm aware of this expert. This is someone who is a noted expert in this field. And that sort of builds on itself. Journalists are a really important audience. Audience. And we've really designed the site with some of the particular incentives or challenges of journalism in mind, including the fact that journalists are often writing on a deadline. And so they need something that they're gonna be able to use relatively quickly and, and get into an understanding of all right, what exactly is this person's area of expertise? So that's sort of one bucket. The second is people who are putting together, you know, conferences and panels, people who work at think tanks like Brookings that are trying to have diverse and inclusive conversations and they're looking to have different voices and combinations of people that might be speaking. And then there's sort of a third category, and that's, you know, there is a lot of need for substantive expertise. Um, You know, there are members of Congress that need briefings, um, you know, congressional testimony, the National Academy of Sciences, for example, that invite experts in to speak to decision makers about important policy questions. And they are also struggling. They're interested in having more diversity, better representation. But for whatever reason, they're also struggling to identify the right names. So that's another group that we're hoping this really might be a useful resource to.
0: Now there's a notion that we've all heard before that goes something like this. So of course technology experts who are men exceed the number of technology experts who are women in being quoted because perhaps there are more men than women in the technology field. So that you should focus on the pipeline that is creating technology experts who are women rather than trying to just select women to balance out your panels or your news stories. Can you address that concept?
4: Yeah, so first, I think the answer is we've got to do everything at the same time, right? Yeah, we do need to think about how to get more women in STEM, more women into these fields in the first place. So I don't think that we're thinking about this as, oh, you know, this is the only area that should be focused on. We viewed this as one area in which we had value add. Look, if we were looking at conference panels in which, you know, the absolute best ideas were being represented and the best articulations and the sharpest articulations, and it just happened to be men, I think that argument might hold. A little bit more water. The problem is that's not what's happening. What's happening is because of whatever forces are at play that are resulting in the underrepresentation of women we are also missing some of the best ideas, some of the smartest voices at the same time. And so by excluding women, we are excluding ideas. And anyone who is a participant in this conversation and is a, a part of this community is aware of that because we've all sat in con- in conferences and we've all listened to panels or read a quote in a newspaper article and thought, well, you're missing this other thing, or it should have been, you know, here's a better way to think about it. And so if what we were looking at right now was a fully representative and rich conversation, you know, maybe we could say, you know, we don't need diversity as window dressing. But diversity here, it's not just about, you know, do you have the equal number of men and women? It's are all ideas and are the best ideas being represented? And that's just not happening.
0: So how can people participate in this? How can they submit their own names or others' names to the list? And who vets the information?
4: Yeah, so we've set it up so that people only sign up themselves, or if they work in an organization where they're empowered, they have authority to sign up other people. You know, we don't want people to end up being on a list if they don't want to be there, in part because this is about public engagement, so this is about media engagement. Not everybody is interested in that, so we want to make sure that this is an affirmative choice to be represented. So anyone who wants to be on the list um, should just go to sourcelist.org, and there's a link to add your name. In terms of the vetting process, we aren't vetting who belongs on the list, who an Expert, right? We've stated what our criteria and intention is. I think the concern is that we're more likely to end up with women who actually are experts feeling like they shouldn't sign up on the list as opposed to people who aren't experts thinking their name belongs, and we're not overly concerned about that being a problem. So in terms of sort of the vetting, we are doing some minimal vetting, you know, to ensure that the information is accurate, that it's a real person, you know, things like that. But really, this is about women experts that are self-identifying, you know, themselves and their expertise and putting themselves out there to say, look, I, I should be part of this conversation, and you should contact me.
0: The first list that you launched is titled Women Plus, that's with a plus sign women in technology policy. Are there more lists coming? What are you working on next?
4: Yeah, so we had this concept of women plus. We originally had just sort of said women, and we wanted to make sure that we were being fully inclusive of underrepresented genders. And so we wanted to make sure that we weren't using terminology in a list intended to increase diversity that actually was going to harm full representation. So that's sort of the first list. We've structured the sites in sort of a domain subdomain format. So it's womenplus.sourcelist.org. You know, with the idea... that, hey, if this idea works, we want to extend it to different forms of diversity, right? So another list might be racial or ethnic diversity. Another list might be geographic diversity, right? International voices is another area, so non-U.S. perspectives. So there's a lot of different metrics of diversity that we could see what direction this is going in. We actually have a link on the site to say, hey, suggest our next list. We want to hear from practitioners in this community and participants of this community who is missing, what should the next list be? And so our is that we're going to take some of those ideas and see what other areas this might be useful and and practical and high impact.
0: Well, can you remind listeners, again, how to find SourceList and also how to contact you and the list?
4: So you just need to go to sourceless.org and you can click on our first list there and also add yourself. And there's also a contact us button and buttons if there's any kind of changes to your individual profiles. So it's all right there. You just visit the site. And if you're a conference organizer or a journalist that are looking for women experts and more diverse voices, also go to the list and just click on find an expert.
0: Well, Susan, I want to thank you for introducing sourceless to our listeners. Appreciate Thanks it. for having me. Thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro, with assistance from Mark Holscher, to producers Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna, to Bill Finan, who does the book interviews, and to Jessica Pavone, Eric Abelaghan, and Rebecca Weiser for design and web support. And finally, thanks to Camila Ramirez and David Nassar for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, where you can also subscribe to Intersections, Five on 45, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. If you go to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.